From Here to Obscurity The Quiet Man of England, Number 2 Kingston Bagpuis In which we learn of the cohesive collaboration of village life and meet an official. Gird your loins, melt your guns. It is time once more to wend our weary way, as needs must and circumstance and deadline dictate, to that Stoke Poges on a budget, that August Riviera hamlet, that English settlement of dubious and questionable memory, to Wesley Turpin. Looming like a wanton floozy at a bar when she's had too much and you not enough, the parish church of St. Matthias hung desperately above the crick bends and cricket square in the centre of the village. Metaphorically and literally, St. Matthias was the austere spiritual heart of the village. St. Arnold's may be prettier, may be more visited, more photographed, more elegiacally sung of than the simple prosody of St. Matthias, but the latter was bigger. It was greyer. It was older. It had seen centuries of moping owls complaining at moons, and many a woodpecker pockmarked the ancient yew in the churchyard. St. Matthias had seen the very tapestry of Christianity ravel and twist neath its Norman tower. It had seen reformation, counter-reformation, and no small amount of non-conformity. The only slight stain upon its fabric was a bruising encounter with the arts and crafts movement. Such was the extent of their zeal that, to this day, the very name of Morris was anathema in the sacristy. They had, mercifully, spared the medieval glass, which on this pale winter's morn cast its green and pink light upon the rude screens and the tall, sturdy figure of Kingston Bagpuis proud sexton of St. Matthias, and the hero of this particular vignette. Kingston Arlet Bagpuis, a name for the ages, venerated and beloved by all in Wesley Turpin, well, all that followed the Turpin cricket team in any case, and that, well, that was the whole village, of course. Bagpuith had first come to the village before the first television, as a journeyman professional from the glories of the Caribbean, when the world was still black and white. He had sauntered casually to the cricket pavilion one dank May morning, and, as the first rays of sun peeped through the clouds, offered to take a turn in the nets. With his gangly frame and pinwheeling limbs seemingly operating with gay independence from his torso, he had gambled freely to the crease, and, breasting the wicket, launched a leather-bound missile at Sunshine Jackson, the village's proud opener. Sunshine Jackson, in those days a ruddy youth of insouciant elegance, was, to be honest, more accustomed to the gentle parabole of rotund and bleary village clerks turning their arms over than that of an imperious Jamaican. The tenor crackle of splintering willow was offset by the castrato shriek Jackson let out as the ball carooned off his bat and into the stumps. 
Well, that was that. Immediately, Bagpews was offered room and board at the moon and a purse of five shillings a week as the team's professional. And, oh, what a glorious season had followed. Records tumbled, teams came and went tails firmly between their ample thighs, and the greying old men on the memorial bench swore loudly they'd never seen such a player. With lissom grace, Bagpoos bowled and batted his team to the victory pennant, the Empire Cup, the all-county plate, brushing aside all comers with cheery and violent disdain. Of such stuff, a legend's made. As with the boast of heraldry, the inevitable hour eventually came, and Kingston Mugpuiz, now in his late fifties, hung up his boots and finally forswore the linseed oil, this to the eternal joy of cricketers young and old from the surrounding hamlets. His tall frame was now stooped with age, and having lived for many decades above the moon was now paunched, portly and girt with dewlaps. He was offered and took, with this customary monosyllabic zeal, a voluntary role within the parish church. Of pay, nothing so vulgar was spoken, but the esteem with which he was held by the village ensured that the collection plate was always a tinkle with enough coin of the realm to ensure that Kingston Bagpuss had all the suet pudding and milk stout an elderly man could want for. His job was twofold. Firstly, he and the ineffable Melton Constable spent their Sabbath as the church wardens of St. Matthias. With their staves proudly held erect, they would usher parishioners pewed, and then, when, as was custom, the rector went on a little too long with his usual perorations on the vile, lustful, sickening inevitability of bodily sin, they would use the tip, a brass roundel stamped with the image of St. Matthias and his drooping hops, to poke a dozing parishioner back into some form of alertness. His quotidian work centred on the churchyard, with its ancient yew and diseased elms. Though village folk did tend to go on a bit, they did, from time to time, have a habit of dying. Every villager, tithes paid or no, had an ancient and inalienable right to die, and also to be buried in one of England's most verdant churchyards, and it fell upon the broad shoulders of Kingston Bagpies to excavate a hole for their eternal internment. He was well suited to the role, with his long, levering limbs proving ample to the needs of hole-mongery, whatever the weather, which frequently it was. He dwelt, as was ancient custom, during the day in a shed hard-pressed to the church's flank and accessible through the vestry. Kingston Bagpuss would wend his way from the moon early every evening, come rain, hail, or shine, a simple rope around his corduroy trousers acting as a belt a faded print shirt open to the navel, and a cap of homespun, once red, green, and gold, but now a muddy brown upon the back of his head. He would take from a pocket of his pants a large florid handkerchief and tootle his nose as he passed under the lich-gate, and, gaining the church porch, produce from the other pocket an enormous iron key with which he would open the door of St. Matthias. Inside it was all cool stone and bared beams of bright oak. Kingston felt the calm from the walls chill his skin as he made his way to the vestry, where an altogether different sense assailed him. 
Born out of centuries of men of certain ages robing and disrobing, and the endless gambling of gay youth of Wesley Turpin, and certain pungency had imprinted itself on the very walls that proved impossible to either ignore or whitewash away. Through the fog, Kingston would saunter to the very back, and there, unlocking a small side door, he would stoop to conquer his own little shack, wherein the tools of his trade were neatly arranged. There was an old transistor radio, a small camp-stool, and an old iron stove on which a small coffee-pot stood. It is to hear that Kingston Bugpuss would repair at any opportunity, whereon he would set out his stool, brush the dirt from his hands, unfurl a copy of the racing post from his back pocket, and, having artfully blown his nose, would set about the form with a small chewed pencil. And in such a way did our hero ply his endless days. Men of England is a very broad and very shallow production, written by Brian Painting, performed by Charlie Moriarty, with original music recorded and played by Peter Vincent Ridden.